Amen. What a great hope we have in Christ. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 8. I want to look at verses 31 to 35, although I'll begin reading it, verse 29. Mark chapter 8, I know one place in your bulletin it says Luke, and another place it says Mark. Actually, they're the same text, so you could probably go to either one and really not miss the point. But if you're in Mark, you could uh, turn to chapter 8. It's on page 844, if you're uh, using a, a pew Bible. These are God's words for us this morning. And beginning at verse 29 and reading down through verse 35, here's what God says. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You may be seated. Thank you, Father, for your word. There's no word like your word. And our prayer is that now the same spirit that moved Mark to write these words would now move in our midst and, and even particularly move in our hearts that we would behold wonderful things. Father, your word is living and active. And so we would pray that your work would do its transformative work in our midst and in each of our hearts this morning. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thought it might be helpful this morning to step out of our routine uh, in the book of Exodus and that we would uh, direct our thoughts to uh, the words of Jesus in the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of Mark. And in so doing, I hope to communicate two things to us this morning. First, I, I, I want us to zone in on what I would call the essence of Christianity. 
if we were to burn away all of the accoutrements and extras that accumulate like barnacles on, a, on the bottom of a ship, that we would remove those for a moment and just see what is this Christianity thing in its essence. And then secondly, I'd want us to look at something that our Lord says to us also in these words that describe what I think ought to be understood as the experience of Christianity. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ and therefore experience the truth concerning Christ? First, the essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity is Christ. Christ who is a historical person who did some things as historical events. A real person who showed up in real history and performed some real historical events. In other words, the, the essence of Christianity is, is something in history, something that happened in history, something outside of us, something that occurred long before you and I ever showed up. Peter is the spokesperson commonly in the gospel of counts. And on this case, Jesus has been asking his disciples, uh, so what's the word on me? Who, who do people say that I am? And, and they offered some suggestions of what they've been hearing about Jesus. And then he says, but who do you guys say that I am? What, what, what have you figured out about me, having followed me and heard my teaching and saw what I've, I'm doing? And, and Peter blurts out, you are the Christ. In other words, uh, you are the very one that all of the Old Testament scriptures have been talking about and pointing us to. You are the anointed one of God. And yet it's a bit of a mystery what Jesus says next. Even though Peter gives the correct answer, he says to, to the disciples that don't tell anybody what you've just acknowledged. I would suggest to you the, the confusing mystery of why they're not supposed to tell anybody is that even though they, they have given the correct answer, they do not yet grasp the full significance of what it means that Jesus is the Christ. And, and thus, at this moment, since they don't understand the full implications of Jesus being the Christ, he says, don't, don't tell anybody just yet. And it's at this point that he begins to expand their understanding of the significance, the fuller implications of Jesus being the Christ. And he says there in verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. They had a picture of Christ being this glorious reigning, ruling, prophet, priest, and king, and he is, and he will be, and yet they didn't have a category of uh, Christ being the one who would suffer. It's not that their Old Testament didn't teach them that. They just didn't have a full comprehensive understanding of what their Old Testament scriptures taught. And he goes on and, and, 
And he, of course, Peter begins to pull him aside in this context and rebuke Jesus. Uh, again, this is a great confusion. You see why Jesus said, don't tell anybody what you just said because you guys don't understand this. As, as, as Jesus begins to explain that the Son of Man must suffer many things, Peter rebukes Jesus, which in turn warrants Jesus to rebuke Peter. But, 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 but amidst this clarification, he, he goes on to say, Jesus says three things about himself in the context of his suffering. He says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and first of all, be rejected by the elders, by the chief priests, by the scribes. In other words, the, the whole religious establishment, almost in total, will, will reject Jesus as the Christ and that he will be killed, second part of verse 31, and then the last part of verse 31, and after three days rise again. All in the context of the Son of Man suffering many things, three historical events will unfold in the life of this historical person. Jesus, the Son of God, in suffering many things will be rejected, will be killed, and yet will rise again. What I'm suggesting is that this, these statements, these realities, are define the essence of Christianity. And, and it's so interesting how it's framed here. This is, this is the literary center of Mark's gospel account. It is the theological center of the scriptures. It is the historical center of all of the events in the world. And it is the essential center of Christ's saving work. What is it? Christ's death. He is the one who will be rejected. He is the one who will be killed. And he is the one who will be raised again in just three days. You see, the essence of Christianity is Christ. The essence of Christ is his death on the cross. The truthfulness of Christianity is not merely uh, the the philosophical concepts that are entailed in the Christian faith. The, 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 the truthfulness of Christianity is not merely the moral perspectives that entail the Christian faith. Although the Christian faith has both a worldview system and philosophical concepts, and it has a moral perspective, and, and, and yet those, are, those do not define the essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity is that it is a factual history concerning real events that occurred in the life of a real person. In fact, without the historicity of Christ, without the historicity of the rejection and the killing and the resurrection of Christ, then we really don't have a case 
for Christianity. Christianity crumbles without a real death of a real person who really entered history and who was really raised from the dead. Without these real events that that define and describe the essence of Christianity, then it doesn't matter what our worldview claims are. Without the historicity of the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ, then it doesn't matter what our moral commitments are. But if Christ has lived and died and lived again, if that occurred in history as the Scriptures present it to us, then everything else about Christianity stands and is true. Every claim of, a, of the worldview system that is consistent with the Christian faith is true because there is an empty tomb. Every moral claim concerning our lives before God is true because there is an empty tomb. See, the essence of our Christian faith is rooted in the proclamation of events that occurred in real history concerning a real person. The essence of Christianity is something that happened a long time ago, apart from us, outside of us, long before we ever showed up and arrived here on this earth. And yet... These historical facts concerning the person of Christ and the event of his death and resurrection, it, 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 the Christian faith is more than those historical facts. The scriptures themselves now go on to interpret what those historical facts mean. The scriptures give to us the understanding of what is the significance of what happened in history concerning the person of Christ, what happened in his death, what happened through his resurrection, what happened over the fact that he was rejected and that he was killed and that he was raised again. Well, there's a cluster of words that the Scripture kind of describes to us as to what the significance is for us and for all the world concerning what Christ has done in history. We could use the term salvation. We could use the term redemption. We could use the term deliverance, and we could even use those in an overlapping way, but, but let's hear what the Scriptures themselves say about what did this historical event of Christ's death and Christ's resurrection, what significance does that have for people like you and I? The apostles give us great clarity to understand the meaning and the significance of Christ who died and was raised. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 says this, that Christ died, and then he gives an explanation. He died for our sins 
in accordance with the Scriptures. I take that to mean as the Scriptures define the meaning and the significance of Christ's death in regard to our sins. And I think what we will see both from that passage, even though it's short and sweet, but a couple of more passages, is that the real significance of Christ's death is the concept of substitution. He would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Apostle Paul would say, for our sake, in other words, something was done for us, for people like us, that Christ's death and resurrection has significance for us today. It's an event that happened in history, but it now gives us definition for our lives today. For our sake He, meaning God the Father in this passage, He made Him, meaning God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. In other words, what we're seeing here is that God did a substitutionary transfer, that God the Father took sin and placed it on the sinless Son of God. So that, Paul writes, Further, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, so that in Him, meaning in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. It was an exchange. On the cross, the real event in history, Christ took the sins of of people like you and I, any and all who even this morning would turn to Christ and trust only in Him. Christ took upon Himself our sins. And the swap out was He took our sins and He gave to us His righteousness. Peter says this similarly in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, he being the righteous one, and us being the unrighteous one. So uh, Christ also suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That, that, that Christ's substitutionary work in which he swaps out our sins for his righteousness is what accounts for how people like you and I can now have a right relationship with a holy God. Or listen to the testimony of John in 1 John chapter uh, 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. A propitiation. That's not a word that you're going to hear very often. It's it's a rich Old Testament word, but the word propitiation simply means that Christ, in being the propitiation, He would bear the punishment for our sins in our place, our substitute. 
that, that he would take upon himself our sins and, and that in bearing upon his, in, in his body our sins on the cross, he would thus be the one who removes the wrath of God from us because he absorbs the wrath of God in his own body on the cross. This real event in history, the, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, this real event in history has profound significance and implications for you and I right here, right now, today. For Christ's death on the cross meant something. It meant something in the entire scheme of God in time and space in history. So thus, the, the essence of Christianity are, is the historical events pertaining to Christ and the significance of those historical events. Thus, given the fact that we all have sinned against God, there's narrow one of us who has assembled here this morning of which it cannot be said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, there's not a one of us that the next truth doesn't apply. For the wages of sin is death. Given the fact that we've, we've each sinned against God, and therefore we stand condemned before Him because his justice is holy. But given the fact that his love is also holy, that the Father loves sinners. And so he initiates a rescue mission in history. And it surrounds the historical event of Christ's death and resurrection. The Father sends His only begotten Son to take our condemnation. Christ takes our sin and He takes the condemnation of our sins for He substitutes Himself. He absorbs the wrath of God thereby abating the wrath of God from any and all who would even this morning turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Father has accepted the sacrifice of His Son as our substitute and the proof that he has accepted the sacrifice of his son is that Jesus has not stayed dead. God has raised him from the dead and given him a flood of new life and declared him to be Lord, the righteous son of God whose obedience and perfect righteousness qualifies him to be the perfect sacrifice as a substitute for folk like you and I. God raised Jesus from the dead. And now all who turn to Jesus. For Jesus is the only one qualified to make these claims. All who turn to Jesus will be pardoned. Full 
final, forever pardon of our sins. All who turn to Jesus will no longer stand under the condemnation of God. But there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, we now have a righteous standing before God because of the righteousness of Christ. All who turn to Jesus are now adopted into God's family. The very love that God has for His only begotten Son, we are now brought up into that love, and we are loved in Christ Jesus. We are now indwelt by the Spirit of God. All who turn to Jesus now have the Spirit of Christ dwelling inside of us. All who belong to Jesus are no longer under the dominion and power and enslavement to sin. We have been freed. All who belong to Jesus now have an entirely new destiny. We are eternally secured. The essence of Christianity is the death of Christ and the flood of blessings that come through that death of Christ. But Jesus goes on. He not only describes the essence of Christianity, something that has happened in history outside of us. But he presses it even further when he explains in verse 34, calling the crowds with his disciples, he, he, he wants to give us clarity on how you and I could experience this Christianity today, right here, right now. And he frames that by saying, if anyone would come after me, verse 34. And then he mentions three things. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross. And this is one place where Luke's uh, aversion is a little bit different. Take up his cross daily, Luke adds, and follow me. Which I would suggest to you that those three movements take up his cross, I mean, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, correspond with the three events that Jesus just located about himself, that the Son of God must be rejected, must be killed, and will be raised again after three days. Now, on the one hand, these, these three events in Christ's life, um, they, they, are, they are very unique and um, uh, non-repeatable. Um, and, and yet there is something of a, of a model pl played out for us that even as we affirm that these three events happened in Christ's life, he was rejected, he was killed, and he was raised again on the third day. These three things also apply to what it means to, to come after Christ today. That, that, that the, the true essence of how you and I accept experience Christianity, or in other words, uh, Christian spirituality is defined by Jesus being rejected, Jesus dying, and Jesus being raised again, so that now for us, we experience the essence of Christianity in our own hearts and lives and souls as we experience three similar movements that correspond to each other. He says, the Son of Man must be rejected 
And then he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. I believe those correspond to each other. The rejection of Christ and the renunciation of ourselves are connected. In order to no longer be a part of the crowd that will reject Jesus, you and I must reject ourselves. Now, what I'm about to say is so out of touch with the cultural adaptation of Christianity in North America that it's quite possible that I won't make much sense. Some of you are saying, and that's new? Those who rejected Jesus said no to him. And what Jesus is doing is is that those who rejected him said no to him, but he's saying to us, if we would come after him, then, then we would say yes to Jesus by saying no to ourselves. Now, that's, 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 that, that, that may sound odd. Uh, I would just point out to you that, that, that that's right there. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. So, um, this is what Jesus is saying to us this morning. There is something fundamentally essential about self-denial that qualifies us to experience Christianity. We, we've come to think uh, that um, Christ um, showed up on the scene in order to enhance our lives as we define them. We tell Jesus what we want and how we want to do it, and Jesus scurries off and... Um, gets it worked out for us. Uh, We have a concept of Jesus that he has come to validate our dreams and our desires. Uh, We have a concept of Jesus um, uh, that he is supportive of whatever it is we decide we want to do. Uh, He he has come to improve our self-esteem. He's come to confirm our self-definition. And he's come to approve of our self-direction. No. Christ has come to deliver us from us. Christ has come to put a stop to us. To stop us right in the tracks of where we are. To come after him, we must stop rejecting him by rejecting ourselves. There's a second point that he lists, that we must take up our cross. Now remember, the Son of Man must be rejected 
and that corresponds to his words to us, is that we must reject ourselves. Stop rejecting him and start rejecting ourselves. And then he says, the son of man must be killed. And then what does he turn around and look at you? And so, so and where's your cross at? So take up your cross, the cross analogous to the one that Christ died on is to now be described the definition of our way forward. Christ died on a cross, and we're to do what? Get our own cross and die on that cross similarly. In other words, we must um, sacrifice our hopes and our dreams and our plans and our wants and our demands. We must not only reject ourselves as the first movement, we, we must die to ourselves moment by moment, situation by situation, circumstance by circumstance. We are, in the words of Romans 12, 1, we are to be living sacrifices. Sacrifices. We are to reject ourselves and die daily. In that framework, all of life becomes a test. Henceforward, as a follower of Christ, the test is going to be moment by moment, circumstance by circumstance, situation by circum, cir- circumstance, situation by situation, day by day, will I die to myself or will I assert myself? Will I die to myself or will I justify myself? Will I die to myself or will I prove myself? Will I die to myself or will I pamper myself? Will I die to myself or will I affirm myself? Will I die to myself or will I esteem myself? Will I die to myself or will I focus on myself? We cannot have Christ as our focus if we have ourselves as our focus. Christian spirituality starts with rejecting ourselves. It continues on with not orienting our lives around ourselves. And then the third thing he writes is, and follow me. Wait a minute. How do you follow a dead man? Well, the third point, follow me, corresponds with the third point in his own life, that he will be raised again on the third day. As it turns out, it's a trick question. We don't follow a dead man. We follow the one who has been raised from the dead and declared as Lord. Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. He's been raised from the dead. And since he's alive and been raised from the dead, we can follow him. He's living. And since he has been raised from the dead, he's no longer, uh, that that he is alive, he's been raised from the dead, we must follow him. He is Lord. And so we begin a journey in which we start walking in the life that he approves of. That that we cease from walking in the life that described our former way of living. 
We, we now live a life that is oriented by Christ. That, that at the central event of all of history is the death and resurrection of Christ. If the central event in all the scriptures is the death and resurrection of Christ. If the central event in Mark's gospel is the death and resurrection of Christ, then our life must now be centered in the death and resurrection of Christ. Accepting Christ is rejecting ourselves. His death now shapes our lives and the focus of our lives. And his lordship now is to direct our lives. Or the testimony of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20 puts it this way. The Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who now lives within me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Turn to Christ. Hear him say, if you would follow after me, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Hear the true words of the truest person in history who actually died as our substitute, who's actually been raised from the dead. And now we walk in the reality of that true factual historicity when you and I do not live for ourselves. We reject ourselves and the focus of our lives right here, right now becomes the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would seek him that we would turn to him, that we would trust him, that we would worship him, that we would adore him, that we would obey him, that Christ is now our magnificent obsession. For he died, and now he lives. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for what he has done for people such as us. And our prayer, our hope, our desire this morning, Father, by your grace, is that what he did in history now redefines our life, our story, our history, our destiny. Father, guard us from a cultural adaptation of Christianity that sees Jesus as being a nice, quaint Savior, oh Father, show us the risen Lord who lives now, that we might therefore no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. For we pray this in Christ's name, amen.